Two teenagers were recently arrested. After they were booked, um, the police sergeant told them that they were entitled to one phone call. Sometime later, a man entered the police station and asked for the two men by name. The sergeant replied um, and said, I suppose you're their lawyer? Nope, the man replied. I'm just here to deliver their pizza. It appears that two teenagers have their priorities mixed up. I was born in 1970. I know a lot of you don't think I'm that old. But um, this was the ending of Vietnam, which I don't remember. Um, we had the Watergate, the first president to resign from office. At this time, people were distrustful of their government. So much so that in 1976, a peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, was elected president of the United States. His name was Jimmy Carter, on the hopes of a new perspective. But, you know, things did not get too much better. For all of Carter's term, the economy was in shambles. We had high inflation, energy shortages, energy shortages. Anybody remember gas lines? I don't. Um, high unemployment. All those things. Jimmy Carter even had to fight against members of his own party who actually ran, um, a, ran someone against him in the Democratic primary when he ran for re-election, something that was unheard of. He was criticized for giving away the Panama Canal. He was criticized for the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It's probably the first time we'd ever heard of that country back then. And, there were, and for his handling of the Iran hostage crisis. All of this prompted Jimmy Carter in 1979 to give a speech that became known as the Malays speech. Now, he never used the word Malays. Um, but what he said was that our country was in a crisis of confidence. He said that the United... He said that, um, and he outlined a plan to fix this, but the American people seemed uninterested. So what the United States needed was someone or something to come in and rouse them out of their apathy and do sleep. And this man was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Um, Reagan was an old man as far as presidents went, but because he was an actor, because of people had good feelings about him, he inspired feelings of confidence. And whether you agreed with his policies or not, he encouraged the Americans to begin believing in the American dream again. He exhorted them to get back to what was important. He emphasized optimism, a can-do attitude, and a belief that if the individual American worker was allowed to move, could move the economy forward again and provide a better way of life for his family if the government bureaucracy just stayed out of the way. And it seemed that over time, a complacent, apathetic electorate started to believe that things could be better, so much so that when Reagan ran for re-election four years later, he won in the landslide by simply saying, are you better off today than you were four years ago? I know that sounds like Richard Nixon, but that's the best I can do. And just so you know, this is not a sermon about um, extolling the virtues of Ronald Reagan or uh, against Jimmy Carter. This was just a, about a good lead into the passage today. Uh, our passage today actually comes from the book of Haggai. And, you know, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I haven't gotten into the PowerPoint age yet. So you're just going to have to follow along with me and, and take notes if you want. But um, I know as your eyes start to glaze over, um, I work with Bible Drill on Wednesday nights. And one of the requirements for Bible Drill is that they have to learn the books of the Bible. And we start out learning the books of the Old Testament. 
And it gets pretty easy as they start out with the, you know, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, and they get into the books of history and into the Psalms and Proverbs and into the major prophets. But then we get to the very end, the last 12 books of the Bible, and we reach the minor prophets, and it starts to sound like in the old Saturday Night Live Christmas skit. You know, everybody's singing Christmas carols, but they only sing them once a year, so nobody knows them. And so it's like, good king, went so let's look out. That's kind of what it sounds like when they're saying the minor prophets, because we don't know that much about them. So we're going to look at the book of Haggai, and Haggai is what we know as a post-exilic prophet. In other words, he came about after the exile. Some prophets prophesied to Judah, some prophets prophesied to Israel, but Haggai is one of the last three books of the Bible. He and Zechariah were contemporaries, and he's post-exilic. And he prophesied to this remnant of a remnant of people who had come back from the Babylonian captivity and gone back into Israel. And this is the time that he prophesied. Now, not much is known about him other than, like Reagan, he was an elderly man that spoke with a lot of authority. Um, but it was generally agreed that he was held in high esteem. We also um, the other thing about um, Haggai is it's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only two chapters. But we know that his name means festival. And we see that his message is that if God's people will put him first, put him, his temple first, his programs and his house and his worship, then their present situation that they are in of economic turmoil will give away to a time of blessing and faithfulness that they have been promised as a covenant people of God. So a little historical background before we get into this book. Um, the period of Haggai was a period of trials and testing uh, for this remnant, just like, it, just like it was in the 1970s. They had, they had returned from the nation of Babylon after being slaved, enslaved there for about 70 years. Um, in 538 B.C., Cyrus of Persia... The Persians had come in and overthrown the Babylonian Empire. He issued a, decree, issued a decree allowing the Jewish exiles to return home and rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem. Uh, the Temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So therefore, he issued a decree saying, you can go back home and rebuild your Temple. So about 50,000 people, along with uh, their governor named Zerubbabel, returned home to begin the work. And two years later, they had a foundation laid for the temple. But unfortunately, at this point is where it all stopped. Through political pressure from the neighboring Samaritans, the work was delayed. So 16 years went by after Cyrus' Cyrus's decree and nothing was done. And at this, at this point, a man named Darius um, from the Daniel story assumed the throne and offered his support for the project. But by this time, the Hebrews were so disenchanted and so apathetic that they really had no desire to do anything but build their own homes and make a living. So the, the temple, again, was just left in ruins. So we see in this book that Haggai comes in to minister to a group of people who knew nothing but the harshness of life and the disappointment of an unfulfilled hope. Many of them knew nothing of captivity some of them remembered the former glory of the temple when it existed. But they, but they lived each day with the expectation that there was hope and that God would bring blessing and protection to them in greater fullness than they had known uh, since the days of Solomon's temple. They lived for the hope that one day they would enjoy the promises 
the covenant, the transformation of nature, and shalom, which is a state of peace under the protection of the Lord God and a messianic king. So they were ready, they were waiting for this Messiah to come in and deliver them and rule them in this great nation. Well, they thought this hope had finally come to fruition when Cyrus decreed that um, that the temple should re- rebuild. And so, again, these 50,000 returned home. And this new generation that had never known the temple experience before got to worship in the temple and offer sacrifices. And the older generation were excited and moved to tears because they remembered the glory of Solomon's temple before. So at this point, hope was at an all-time high that finally the Messiah would come. Unfortunately, though, this joy quickly turned to sorrow when the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple. At this point, the people began to wonder, was God really going to deliver them? Were the prophecies that they had been told in exile really true? And so they became more concerned about making a living and spent the rest of their days carving out a simple existence in the midst of an overgrown and barren land that was plagued by drought. So 18 years, three rulers, there was still no temple. But with the coming of Darius, that changed. And so it's important that with this background of unfulfilled promise and economic hardship that we look at the book of Haggai. And I'll begin reading with verse 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time, for for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown, sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased, and with it be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you because while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because because of you, the sky hath withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil and on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle and on all the labor of your hands. Now, Haggai knew that the people were very disheartened, that they'd left the security of Babylon to basically be pioneers in the land of Judah, and that they had faced opposition, and that they had indeed suffered. But at this point, Haggai offers them a message of challenge, and he offers them a message of encouragement. He exhorts them to get their priorities straight by putting God's house in order. They are to take care of the important things first. If you see, he says, he exhorts them to give careful thought to their ways. In other words, literally in Hebrew, it means to set the heart. 
The heart in Hebrew psychology was the organ of thinking and the organ of the will. And so the people are to think and reflect on the situation they're, they're in uh, in light of God's perspective, particularly, particularly excuse me, in light of the temple. You see, for the Hebrews, the temple bridged the past with the future. Haggai focused on rallying the people around the temple because he knew that the worship of God was so important. From the earliest days, the center of their community had been the temple. It had been where they worshipped God. At first, it was the tabernacle, which they had in the wilderness. Later, it was the temple. And the temple symbolized God's presence among them. And so throughout history, the care that the people took of the temple symbolized their faithfulness to God. So rebuilding the temple temple was integral and important to rebuilding and to renewing their faith. The Mo, even the Mosaic Constitution presupposed that a house of worship must be built or that the Jewish religion would dry up and scatter, which is precisely what happened. So building the temple was very important because it symbolized this is God. This is God's place. You and I don't go to a central place of worship. Um, you know, we have our own individual churches, but for the Hebrews, it was very important because this was the presence of God. So the, we see that the people had returned to the land. They had become complacent for many reasons that we've already mentioned. But it wasn't that they were refusing to build the temple. As we see, they were simply, put, simply putting it off. Ever heard of procrastination? Nah, you don't do that. I don't do that. But we see that procrastination is one of the first fruits that comes to bear when we take God out of first place in our lives. You and I know about procrastination. It's coming to the new year, and we always commit, you know, that we're going to exercise, that we're going to eat better. So much so that uh, one man said, I, I spent a fortune on a trampoline, a stationary bike, and a rowing machine, complete with gadgets to read my pulse and gadgets to prove my progress results and, other, and others to show the miles I've charted, but they left off the gadget to get me started. Haggai is encouraging the people of Israel to get started on building the temple. So from procrastination, though, we see that they progress to making excuses. And in their excuses, they had glaring hypocrisies. Their attitude, as you see, was personified by the slogan, the time has not yet come. They've been saying that for 18 years. It's just not the right time. It's just not time to do it. As they said, they had become comfortable in the rut that they were living in. They began to, to rationalize and invent reasons for their procrastination. They thought, God wants us to build the temple. He'll let us know. You and I do the same thing when, when something comes up that we don't want to do. Well, he needs my help. He'll call me. He knows where I live. He knows my number. He'll find someone else to help. But we see that the farther that we move away from God, the more excuses we can find not to serve Him. So, from, so they procrastinated. They started developing excuses. From excuses, we see that they evolve into responding negatively to adversity. Instead of using the adversity that they experience as a motivation to build the temple... It seemed to drive them farther away. And the, and the proof of this is look at um, the materialism that they were experiencing. Rather than building God's house, they were expanding and building their own houses. Uh, but the temple itself still lay in ruins. Now, if you see, it says, uh, my version said the, terms, the term paneled houses. 
By paneled, it means finished. In other words, their home was finished, but the home of Almighty God who had brought them this far lay in ruin. His presence was not there. So we see that Haggai blames the people for their own adversity. He says they have become apathetic and self-sufficient and they see no need for God. God's chosen people, though, God desired that His people would respond differently so that they would be an example to the pagan, to the pagan nations around them. Uh, the pastor Malcolm Muggeridge said it this way when he wrote, he says, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on, the, on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with, with complete truthfulness that everything that I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has, has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. This is what God desired for the, for the surrounding nations to see in His people in Israel, but it's not what they exemplified. So for all this procrastination, for all these excuses, for all this inappropriate response to adversity, lastly we see that they have become lukewarm in their devotion to God, if not dead in their devotion to God. The construction of the temple was a necessary step in their faith, but they completely ignored it. Haggai informs them that there is a correlation between fulfillment of God's promises and responsibility. The people and their leaders are to hold themselves responsible for the delaying of God's promises. Again, he says, he says, be careful, give careful thought to your ways. Because you see, the way that they were going now was the way that had already led them to exile. They were going their own way. And now they're about to go down that road again. So the people and the leaders had become so preoccupied at this point by making a living and improving their lot in life and rationalizing their adversities that they had forgotten about the temple. They had forgotten about God. So God is saying to them, and He's saying to you and me, get your priorities straight. Stop making me an afterthought. Plan your life around honoring me. Put me first and work from there. It's not that improving your standard in life is bad. It's just that you've left me completely out of it. I'm your sustainer. I'm your provider. But you don't even take me into consideration. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. But then he says, for all that they are doing wrongly, for all the challenges and for all this, their despair, he says, there is hope. And in verses 12 through 14, it says, then Zerubbabel, son of Shelatel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadaz, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son of Shelatel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua and the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of, the, of, the Lord of hosts, their God. So we see that God stirred up the hearts of the people and they began to work on the temple. And we see that God has promised them that He would be with them. And He promises them later in chapter 2 
that when this temple is completed, it would be greater than the first. You see, it has to be remembered that the second temple, the one that they are building, the one that they complete, would play a very important role in redemptive history. Well, actually, when it was built, it was not glorious in status and stature like the previous temple. As a matter of fact, Ezra records that when some of the elders saw the new temple, they cried, not because they were overwhelmed, because, but because it was so underwhelming. But it was in this temple that Christ would carry on his Jerusalem ministry. It was, the, it was Christ's advent, advent that was fulfilled in Haggai first, chapter 2, verse 9, that says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. <clears throat> Even though it was not impressive, Haggai is encouraging the people to look beyond the present symbol and beyond their adversities to a future glory of God's kingdom. He tells them the promises are God's. God will keep His promises, but the responsibilities are theirs. We can depend on God's promise, but He depends on you and me to be responsible citizens of His kingdom and to persevere in doing good. The work you and I do here on earth is temporary, but we see that God's work extends beyond the moment to accomplish His purposes in the future. Haggai reminds the people that the work of God's people always points beyond the present moment to the continuation of God's work and the fulfillment of His purpose. As the poet C.T. Studd says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we see from these passages that when we give God first place in our lives, that we shouldn't grow weary in service to the Lord and that God's promises for tomorrow become the foundation for our confidence today. God will keep His promises. We must be obedient and faithful vessels to carry out those promises. So a new year is upon us and we use this time to set goals and reprioritize our lives. What I'd like to ask you today is, where is God in your life? This is the time that you and I should consider our ways. Just as God used Haggai's message to shake the remnant out of their apathy, so He wants to arouse you and me out of our own apathy to make Him first in our lives. Have you been procrastinating in doing what you know He desires? Have you put off joining a body of believers, serving in children's church, or sharing Christ with a friend or a colleague? you find yourself making excuses or maybe becoming angry or weary because you've had a rough go of it this year? Are you simply carving out a space for God? Or is there a space at all? You know, I realize in the capacity of my job that 2009 has been rough in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Uh, many of you just can't wait for it to end and for a new year to begin, and whether it's for a personal, a spiritual, a emotional, or a financial reason. But let me encourage you not to let God's testing times go to waste. You have many opportunities, year, many opportunities this year to be a blessing to other people, to invest in the lives of others, to share the lessons that you've learned through your adversity with others because there have been a, been a lot. We have numerous opportunities here. If you look at our mission tree over here, you have opportunities to adopt a child in Africa, to work, work with 
senior citizens um, to be involved in our discipleship classes. If you need someone to speak to about how to put God first place in your life, we'll have someone in the connection room after the service is over. You know, many of you uh, remember Charles Lowry. We had him here a while ago to do a, a marriage conference. And a few years ago, and I'll close with this, he did an interview with a Christian magazine. And in this particular instance, he was speaking to ministers. But his point is universal. This is what he observed. He said, life is like Monopoly. You may be pastoring First Church Boardwalk, or you may be pastoring First Church Baltic. It doesn't really matter, because in the end, it all goes back in the box. The next generation will be getting out all of your stuff and playing with it or fighting over it. To find out what is really important in life, look back on it from your own funeral. The only things that matter are faith, family, and friends. Get your priorities right today. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do come to You today, God, thanking You, Lord, that if we know You, our chains are indeed gone. Father, as we come into this new year, Lord, with its own challenges, God, we remember as the people of Israel, Lord, what You've done in the past. And God, how you've been, as You've been faithful in the past, Lord, You will be faithful in the future. Lord, we commit our lives to You. We commit our time as individuals. Lord, we commit our time as a church. Lord, to put you first. God, I ask that you would convict our hearts. Lord, show us ways and areas, God, where we are keeping you out. Lord, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We love you, God, and we give you all the glory. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.